If you, if you are willing and able, would you please stand this morning uh, out of respect for God's words for us? I'll read our scripture on which our sermon's based today from the Gospel of Luke. Friends, these words are utterly true and they are given to us in love. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to say hi uh, to everyone here on campus. Those of you joining us online, great to be together today. Uh, If you're new with us, uh, I'm Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really glad that you're here with us today. And uh, you're actually coming on a really great Sunday. We're starting a new series today called Undeniable Witness, where we are looking at some of these various encounters that people had with Jesus after his resurrection. And some of you, that may be a a startling announcement after his resurrection. Uh, The reality is that there was this 40-day period after Jesus' resurrection where he was seen by people, where he encountered people. He engaged with them. He talked with them. Uh, They touched his scars on his body. They saw him ascend into heaven. And we're not talking here just about one or two or 11 disciples. We're talking, the apostle Paul talks at one point in one of his letters about how there were 500 men who saw Jesus at one time, this massive amount of people who saw Jesus post-resurrection. And so we're going to look at some of those encounters and what they mean for our lives today. This morning, we find ourselves leaning in, listening to this conversation on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus was a small village, uh, most likely dead west of Jerusalem, as far as we can tell. Two Emmaus travelers, one named Cleopas, the other companion, not named in this story, are on their journey back home from Passover. 
from Jerusalem. This was very common, very common. Uh, We know that the population in Jerusalem would swell up to five times its normal size during festivals like Passover. But now these travelers are heading home and these travelers are facing something we may all face in our point at some point in life. And we may be facing even this morning. These travelers are facing what the biblical scholar Ian Duguid calls living in the reality gap, living in the reality gap. This is what he says. How do you respond when you find yourself falling into the reality gap? How do you feel when there seems to be a huge difference between what God has promised and what you see now? What do you do when the vision you once had of the way your life was supposed to work out seems to be crumbling in the dust? For most of us, much of our life seems to be spent trudging along that dreary road to Emmaus. Friends, I think we can say we all know the gap, the the disappointment of things that didn't go as planned, the the frustration with issues that we are still finding exist, the sadness that we feel like we are alone in the fight, in the gap. Are you in the gap this morning? Well, I want you to know this morning, if anything else, that you are not alone, just like these travelers, uh, that we all face this gap. The the poet T.S. Eliot called it the human condition. He, He wrote about it in his play, The Cocktail Party. This is what he says. The condition to which some who have gone so far, we must learn to avoid excessive expectation. There's this gap. There's this, this expectation that you and I have about life, and it doesn't seem to match our experience. Our hopes only find disappointment. There's this unforgettable scene uh, of the human condition in one of the best movies of all time. Yes, you, you were thinking of it as well. Braveheart from 1995, starring uh, Mel Gibson. He plays William Wallace. William Wallace is a Scottish rebel, a Scottish commoner fighting against the English army who, who is um, carrying out violence and tyranny in the land. But Wallace knows that he can't achieve lasting change as a commoner. He, he knows he needs the help of the Scottish nobles and particularly one character, Robert the Bruce. But there is this moment where it is revealed that in a battle scene, Uh, Robert the Bruce has been fighting alongside the English army against Wallace. And in that moment, you see the disappointment in Wallace's face, the sadness of the experience of betrayal, the gap, the gap that we all know. It is the human condition, as Eliot put it. These two travelers find themselves wrestling in that same reality gap. And maybe this morning you find yourself wrestling with that gap as well. The gap between what you would hope for and what is reality. This gap could be your employment that was because of the way things have gone with COVID. The numbers are down. Your business is on the verge of disaster. That could be you this morning. You could have maybe already experienced unemployment because of COVID. Maybe this morning you find yourself in just a general sense of stuckness in life. Just you can't name it, but there's this stuckness that you feel. You could be here this morning facing a chronic illness or health problems. It could be the unrest of our country and what lies ahead. There just could be for you maybe this morning, a general sense of disappointment about life on the road to Emmaus. Where do we turn with the gap? Where do we turn with the gap? Well, four things from our passage. 
not three this morning, but four. And hopefully the sermon won't be 45 minutes long. Four things, name the pain, examine your hope, notice the story, and finally let him in. Let's talk first about name the pain. And what we see in our passage first is we see the intensity of this gap that these two are experiencing. In our passage, what we see are these two travelers find this unexpected guest who is Jesus. They don't know this at this point has come up and they don't recognize him. But in verse 15 of their conversation, Jesus joins in. And what we notice is this is not a light conversation. This is not a conversation about the weather. It's a heavy conversation. They're trying to make sense of the pain that they are experiencing, that these two travelers are trying to hash it out together. How do we know this? Well, first, our translation doesn't give us the full weight of the words in this passage, particularly in verse 15. We learned it says they were discussing with each other, but that word in the original language really carries with the idea of they were disputing, they were, they were debating, they were, they were hashing out their disappointment about life between what was and what might have been. And the second reason we know this is not a casual conversation about the restaurants they tried while they were in Jerusalem is in this moment in verse 17, Jesus says to him, I see you're having a conversation about something. But uh, in the original language, this, this word is antibalo, antibalo, meaning balo is to throw down and anti is against think antithesis. This idea of throwing down against, they were, they were having a massive debate and discussion about reality, about the gap, about what was going on in life. And Jesus is trying to join in to this heated conversation. And you can see how they want to respond to him uh, later in this passage. Uh, Cleopas responds pretty emphatically as Jesus asks, Hey, what's going on? He says to him, are you the only person? Are you the only person who doesn't know what has happened to Jesus? The subtext of what he's saying is, have you been living under a rock? Do you not know what's going on? And Jesus responds right after this in verse 19 with, what, what things? What, what things have been going on? Uh, the best scene I can think of is uh, from that great movie, The Sandlot, 1993. If you remember that, the great baseball movie of summer friends and baseball perfectly mixed together. And there's a scene where they're, they're, the boys are up in the treehouse together and Ham Porter asks Scotty Smalls, do you want a s'more? Do you want a s'more? And Scotty doesn't know what's going on. He says, some more what? Some more what? And, it, and the, the conversation keeps going and have, no, no, a s'more. Do you want me to make you a s'more? And he says, some more what? And finally, Ham Porter offers us the iconic line. You're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me. That's the scene that we have here in this passage. This conversation keeps invoking that. Cleopas thinks this third person who has joined their conversation doesn't get it. You're killing me, Smalls. This companion doesn't understand the gravity of what is happening. Cleopas is naming the pain. He's naming the intensity of the gap, the gap between what was and what might have been. And sometimes we try to avoid this gap, but it will eventually pop up in our lives. Sometimes we can move along just fine and deal with it. And at other times it feels like it's right there. The intensity of the gap is right in our face. The pain or the disappointment feels almost unbearable, but there is something about naming the pain that allows us to move forward, to begin the journey. Have you named it? Even naming it with the intensity we find in this passage. Author Dan Allender says, we all remember where we were when the shalom in our lives was shattered. 
We all remember. We all, we all realize we don't live in a perfect world, that something happened, something was said. There is a gap. There is a gap. Have you named it? The second part to naming the pain is naming it with others. That's what we see in our passage. These, these two companions are journeying back to Emmaus and they're talking and hashing it out together. It isn't an isolated conversation in their head, thinking about their pain. No, they're, they're talking about it. They're getting it out. But you notice it's not blasting it over a microphone of the pain that you're dealing with. It's as Brene Brown says, having a few safe people, having a few safe people in your life to process your pain. Do you have those safe people? Have you named the pain? It's the only way we can move forward is first acknowledging it is first acknowledging it. That's the first thing. The second is actually equally important. It's we have to examine our hope. Examine our hope. Look at verse 21. This is what he says. But we had hoped that he, Jesus, was the one to redeem Israel. The gap exists between what was and what might have been, between what T.S. Eliot called our excessive expectations, uh, between where our hope is and whatever has our gaze, and can it actually deliver? Can it deliver where we've put our hope? That is the fundamental question. The fundamental question is not, do you have hope? Everyone has hope. It's, well, what do we put our hope in? Where have we placed our hope? Because at the end of the day, hope is essential to life. The Russian author, Dostoevsky said it this way, to live without hope is to cease to live. To live without hope is to cease to live. You and I must plunge our hopes somewhere, plunge them into something. That's what it means to be human. But the gap reveals to us something very important. There is a disappointment. There's a disappointment that you and I have in our lives. There's an ache. There's a longing. There's a, there's a sense of things aren't right, a, a, a sense of being unfulfilled. Our hopes have disappointed us. Uh, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar is an author, but what he's known for more than anything else is he had a class at Harvard University and it's considered the most popular and successful class in the history of Harvard. Uh, he would receive over 900 students every semester for this one class. And now you're thinking, what was the class? What was the course? The course was called How to Find a Flourishing Life. How to Find a Flourishing Life. It's amazing that in one of the most secular regions of the US in the Northeast, at one of the most prestigious schools possible, for your resume, students are aching because of the gap. Students are, are, are looking to fill the longing, to fill their need of what they don't have. They're looking for hope. And they're looking for what Viktor Frankl called man's search for meaning. We're, we're all searching for meaning. We're all searching for hope. We're all plunging our hopes into something, hoping that it will satisfy. But Ben Shahar tells us that this is what can happen sometimes, we could fall, you and I can fall from one of the oldest tricks in the book, what he calls the arrival fallacy. He shares this story about many, uh, they, they approach their life in such a way that there's a hope they have of one day, everything's going to be set right. Uh, one day I'll finally arrive at where I want to be at making it to the top. But what he says is it never satisfies. It never satisfies. And ultimately there's this inevitable pain that comes with us when we find ourselves in the gap, in the gap, he writes this, these individuals start out unhappy, but they say to themselves, it's okay because when I make it, then I'll be happy. 
but then they make it. And while they may feel briefly fulfilled, the feeling doesn't last. This time they're unhappy, but more than that, they're unhappy without hope because before they lived under the illusion, well, the false hope that once they make it, then they'll be happy. Friends, have you examined your hope? Where are the places you've said, once I get here, uh, once I get this, once, once I find this, once I have this, uh, when this is better, then everything will be right with the world. <laughs> everything will be okay then. But as Bencher Har pleads with us and is pleading with you this morning, this is an illusion. It's an illusion. It's a six inch deep hope that will never satisfy. But this morning, can you see our dilemma? Uh, Dostoevsky, Viktor Frankl, they say we have to have hope. It's, it's what it means to be human. We have to put our hope into something. But on the other end, Ben Shahar is telling us where we've put our hopes continue to disappoint us. We have to have hope. It's what it means for us to be human. But where we've plunged our hopes only show us there's a gap. We keep finding it, that gap. Cleopas tells us in our passage, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Uh, I don't know if you've ever uh, been to the beach and you have seen as the tide is going out into back into the ocean, there are these little pockets of water that continue to exist, little six inch deep pockets of water. And, and those pockets of water are, are wonderful. You may, you may go and sit in them in, in that incredibly warm water and it feels amazing. You know, these little pockets I'm talking about that, that six inch deep water right there at the ocean. And it's warm and it's amazing. It feels amazing as that hot sun just bakes on that little pocket of water. But then you begin to become discontent. Is this, is this it? Is this all the fun a day at the beach is? This little six inch pocket of water? And you may also find yourself very concerned as there was a kid playing in that same pocket of water with you who just got up to leave, but you're thinking this was their public restroom two minutes earlier. The pocket of water that felt so warm and inviting now feels unsatisfying and frankly disturbing. You know that this six inch deep pocket of water will not satisfy. But off in the distance, you hear a roar. You hear the roar of the ocean. You hear the sound of a better hope, of a greater adventure. The ocean is inviting you into something bigger than yourself. The roar. What are we being invited into? Well, that's the third thing we have to see. Where do we turn with the gap that we feel this morning? We have to notice the story. Notice the story. Our travelers, these two travelers, still have not connected that the companion that is walking with them is the risen Jesus on this road. He's the one they've been longing for. But Jesus will show them where they can truly place their hope. Uh, look at verse 27. This is what it says. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus in this verse shows the aim and the goal of actually the entire Bible, the goal of all reality. It is the anchor that will hold you no matter what storm you face today. It's the hope that will see you through the gap. 
Jesus shares with these two disillusioned travelers that all reality, all of history, all of scripture, all the story of their life, including the gap, have been pointing to him. Jesus tells them, I am the only one you can plunge your hope into. I'm the only one who can bring you contentment right in the middle of the gap. I'm the only one who can set you free. Jesus says, all these biblical characters were just shadows and types that were pointing to me. You see, we can read the Bible, but miss the story. There are two ways to read the Bible. The Bible is basically about you and what you need to do. Think Aesop's fables. Or is the Bible basically about Christ and what he has done? But notice our encounter. Jesus does not tell these weary, discouraged Emmaus travelers to try harder. He doesn't tell them to put their hope in themselves, to put the hope in their accomplishments. He does not say in this passage, it does not say, and Jesus taught them things concerning themselves. It does not say that. And thank goodness. Thank goodness, because we know that if there was more for us to do, more for us to accomplish, the only thing we would find is we are driven deeper into the gap. But Jesus gives us a better hope and a better story. It tells us in our passage, and Jesus taught them all the things concerning himself. Theologian John Calvin wrote a preface to the French translation of the New Testament in 1535. And this was his introduction to make sure we notice the story. Here's what he says. He, Christ, is Isaac, the beloved son of the father who was offered up as a sacrifice, but nonetheless did not succumb to the power of death. He is the good and compassionate brother Joseph, who in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers, however lowly and abject their condition. He is the great sacrifice and Bishop Melchizedek, who was offered an eternal sacrifice once for all. Jesus is the sovereign lawgiver Moses, writing his law on the tables of our hearts by his spirit. He's the faithful captain and guide Joshua to lead us to our promised land. He is the victorious and noble King David, bringing by his hand all rebellious power to subjection. Jesus is the magnificent, triumphant King Solomon, governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. He is the strong and powerful Samson, who by his death has overwhelmed all of his enemies. This is what we should, in short, seek in the whole of Scripture, truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and are offered to us by him from God the Father. If one were to sift thoroughly the law and the prophets, he would not find a single word which would not draw and bring us to him. Therefore, rightly does Paul say in another passage that he would know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Calvin tells us that the story is not about how you become Isaac, how you become obedient to death. No, you and I need a greater Isaac, a greater champion who was not only willing to be offered up, but did offer up his life as a sacrifice in our place. The story has always been pointing to him. Do you see it? One of the activities that always humbles me every time I take part in it is taking part in an escape room. I don't know if you've ever done an escape room before, but um, if you have it, basically escape rooms are set up. You, you have an hour clock. They put you in a room. They lock you in and you have an hour to see if you can get out. Can you escape? That's the goal. That's what you're paying for. The pride 
to see if you can get out. And I want you to know something this morning. I'm awful at these. Absolutely awful. And you may be saying, Tyler, you're being way too modest, but I've done enough of these to know that I'm, I'm, I'm the weakest link on the team. Because everyone else is figuring out the combinations first. Everyone else is decoding the map faster. Everyone is, is arriving at how do we get into the next stage of this escape room. Everyone's figuring all this thing out, but I'm just there. I'm a liability. And so in case you're wanting to invite me out to one of these, I just wanted to prep you ahead of time. That's, that's what you're going to get. Just warning you. Now, every time that we've done one of these, we've always gotten out. We've always beat the hour clock. And what your reward is, besides getting out in the hour time, is you always take an obligatory celebration picture. Everyone stands arm in arm. Uh, they take a picture right after the, the success that you've done it, that you've made it out. Everyone celebrates together in this picture. Now, even though I was the weak link, nobody tells me, Tyler, can you go stand off in that corner while we take this picture? Just go, st- just go stand over there. No one, no one says to me, Hey, hey, Tyler, why don't you go wait in the car? Just go wait in the car. We're going to take this picture real fast. You go wait in the car. We'll come get you when we're done. No, every time, every escape room, I'm in the pick, every victory pick. I am there. The weakest link always celebrates. Why? Why? Well, because the one who pressed the final button or the one who put the final key that opened up the final door to freedom, they were the victor. But their victory wasn't just for them. Their freedom wasn't just for them. It flowed down all the way down, even to me, to the weakest links. They stand grinning ear to ear with everyone else in the celebration picture. Friends, this is why we must notice the story, because there was one whose victory has become our victory. There's one whose freedom has become our freedom. You, like me, may feel pretty incompetent today. Left to yourself, you probably would still be in the escape room well past an hour and maybe for all eternity. The good news of the gospel is that what is true of Jesus can be true of anyone else who wants to break out with him. And even the weakest links, even the weakest links end up in the celebration pictures. When the story of your life finds its fulfillment and the better story which Christ is telling and what Christ has accomplished, you will find a perspective that stabilizes you through any situation you will face. His victory has become your victory. His freedom has become your freedom. The weakest leaks always stand accepted because of what someone else has done forever. The only question is, do you want that? Do you want that? Well, that's the last thing we need to see. We must invite him in. Have you invited him in? Look at our passage uh, in verse 29. This is what it says. But the two men urged Jesus strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. This was a common ancient practice of hospitality. You would see in the first century of where a traveling guest would be with you. You would invite them in to stay with you. But notice how insistent Cleopas is on Jesus staying with him. Jesus, Jesus is planning to go a little further. We don't know where he was going. He was planning to go a little further. Uh, But what we see is that he was invited to come in and stay with Cleopas. And what we know is that if you invite him in, he will stay with you. Have you invited him into your life? Have you invited him in this morning? 
We have this promise from Jesus himself that he says, if you will invite me in, I will truly come and be with you. It says this in Revelation 3.20, Jesus speaking to us. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Uh, Many times we think there's no point in me inviting him in. He won't enter. (laughs) Not with what I've done. Not with the mess that I have made. Not with the secrets I've kept. Not with the things that I have done. But friends, I want you this morning to hear his promise to you. If you will invite him in, whatever has happened doesn't preclude him from drawing near. It's Christ's very heart to draw near to sinners. That is his heart for us. We actually hear this from the Puritan Thomas Goodwin. He puts it this way. Christ is love covered over in flesh. Christ is love covered over in flesh. Jesus is not out for our demise, but he is out for us to be with him. That's his heart for you. I hope you hear that. His heart for you is to be near, for your story to be swallowed up in the great story of his life, for his victory to become your victory. The question this morning is, how do you know he's entered your house? How do you know he's entered your house? Well, from our passage, there are two ways. The first is he starts to take over. He starts to take over. Look at verse 30. This is what he says. When Jesus was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Now, all commentators agree that the breaking of the bread was done by the head of the house. Jesus is this unknown guest, unknown traveler who is now operating like he is running the show. This is one way you know that you've truly invited him into your life is that he is starting to take over. He starts to question you about areas of your life that you still think you are in control of, of all the places where, where you have these worries, where, where you have these gaps in your life. And, and he's asking you about those. Uh, He's asking you about the rooms where we have locked the doors and we've simply said to Jesus, have a look around the house, have a look around, but you can't go in there. Where are those places for you? When you invite him in, his victory becomes your victory, but he doesn't long for you to stay in defeat. He wants to take over. He wants to break the bread like it's his house. This morning, friends, will you hand over the deed? Will you hand over the deed to the house and say, Jesus, this house is now yours? What are the rooms that you've locked and you've said to Jesus, those are off limits. You you know, you've invited him in when you begin to realize that there is a gap, but it will never be solved in our own strength. It'll only be handing it over to him and allowing him to be the head of the household. That's the first way you you know he's entered. He starts to take over. He starts to question all the areas of our life and he wants to break the bread. The second way you know he's entered is there is a fire that burns within you. A fire that burns. Look at verse 32, right at the end of our passage. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? What's this fire that's burning within them? It's what the Methodist preacher John Wesley called after his conversion, being strangely warmed, being strangely warmed. It's this, the longing is being fulfilled. It's the reality of a well that will never run dry in your life. It's when there's an anchor that will hold you through the toughest storms you will face. 
It is the story that there is one who is better and everything in all reality has been pointing to him. It's the one hope that you can have that fills you and meets you right in the gap that you are facing. Jesus told them about the gospel. He told them about the the fire that they can have as they unpack the greater story of all scripture, the story of his death in their place and the resurrection on their behalf, the victory of his that has now become their victory. That's the only thing that will be our true north in the midst of the gaps that we will face. When we see what Christ has done for us in his death and his resurrection, there is a fire that can burn within us. No matter what we are facing, we will be strangely warmed. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century mathematician. And around the age of 30, he had a vision, a a vision moment. We don't know if it's his conversion or just an experience with God, but it so moved him that he committed it to writing and he pinned it to the inside of his coat jacket that he wore to the day he died. In fact, they found this little note pinned to him after he had died. And this is what he wrote of this experience. Blaise Pascal wrote this. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23 November, from about past 10 at night until about half past midnight, fire. (laughs) There's a fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel, the grandeur of the human soul. Joy, 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 tears of joy. May I never forget your words. Amen. There is a fire that burned within Pascal because of the gospel, because of Jesus's victory for the weakest links like him and the weakest links like me. And the fire burns with joy, joy in the midst of every difficult season, joy in the midst of the deepest pains you will face, joy in the midst of confusion, joy right in the middle of the gap. And this morning you're invited to see that, to invite him in and to see the fire that burns right in the midst of whatever you're facing. The question is, is there a burning? Is there a burning? Invite him in. Invite him in. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful and so grateful that there is a greater story to which all reality has been pointing. That there's a greater life that meets us right in the gap, that meets us in the disappointments that meets us in the pain. And this morning you are calling us to surrender over to the only one and the only hope that will meet us and satisfy. We pray this in Jesus name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.